Faced with the hard task of economic recovery from COVID-19, governments need to prioritise policy changes that make a difference while minimising the political cost. But Australian policy has stagnated under the lack of prioritisation. The failure to prioritise has been labelled as one reason for the failings of the Rudd government, the Abbott government and the shortened opposition. In today's special prioritisation podcast, Senior Fellow John Daly discusses his latest report, Prioritising a Government's Agenda, with fellow Kate Griffiths. Stay tuned as they discuss what Australian governments should do next. I'll just start by stepping back, actually, before we dive into the new report. I want to take a moment because this is an unusual policy report. Like, it's not tackling a specific policy area or a debate that's happening right now. Um, It's kind of more about how you think about policy or how you compare different policy options. So, So where did this come from, John? What inspired this report? So before I started at Grattan, which was uh, something like 11 and a half years ago, uh, I worked for a while at McKinsey Company, the management consultants, and I spent three years as the head of strategy for the ANZ Bank. Uh, And if you're doing private sector consulting work, you spend your life worrying about prioritisation. And as the head of strategy um, for a significant corporate, you spend your life arguing about prioritisation, talking to business unit leaders about of all the things that they've got on their agenda, which of them are in fact the most important, um, which of them are they going to put resources into and which of them are they going to deliberately say, look, that's part of phase two and we'll do it some other time so that we can make sure that we get the things done that we really care about. And so when I started at Grattan, um, I actually, the very first speech I gave um, was uh, about um what should governments think about prioritising? And as I was doing the work for that speech, I realised that whilst there was a huge range of literature for the private sector about how you prioritised, the public sector literature was actually much thinner. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's something I've always been interested in. Um, the reality is that there's always way more good ideas that governments have than they have really got the bandwidth to do. How should they choose between them? Uh, And as I, you know, always had this in the back of my mind, one of the things that became very obvious as I talked to people was that partly because there wasn't a lot written about it um, and partly because there was a bit of an attitude of, oh, well, you know, the minister just, you know, like their priorities are whatever they say to the electorate and, you know, it's in their party platform. Those are their priorities. and, And, you know, our job is just to, you know, make them happen. Uh, and the thing that always worried me about that was, well, what do you do when the minister comes to you and says, well, what do you think my priorities should be? Because um, ministers are entitled to ask for advice about that question as well. And indeed, sometimes they do. Um, and so I, I've always wanted to have a go at trying to provide a much better answer, um, much more thought through about how should you go about answering that question Um What should a government's priorities be? So then it sounds like you're talking to public servants there. Is is that the primary audience for this report? Like who who is doing the priority setting and using this particular framework you propose? Well, I think the reality is that ministers are using it. Um, Ministers' advisors are using it. The public service are using it. Anybody who um, would like to offer advice to a minister is probably using it because, of course, in a system like ours, although without doubt it is ministers who have the 
formal legal power to set the agenda. The reality is that they are influenced and take advice from lots of people. Um, and hopefully this kind of much more structured way of thinking about that question will be helpful to all of the people involved in that process. Right. Okay. So we've got quite, quite a broad audience for this report, but perhaps not as broad as, as the sort of the general public. Um, and do you think sort of prioritisation principles are useful to, to others, to, to business leaders or, or to people in their everyday lives? Uh, look, everybody has to prioritise. Um, as I said, this partly came from uh, my experience knowing that that was a big deal in the private sector, certainly for, for companies that did well. Uh, and obviously in our personal lives, we have to prioritise as well. But um, I think that the criteria we use for doing that are very different depending on the context. And I think one of the things that's been very obvious as we develop this framework for prioritisation in government is that the criteria that you use for prioritisation in government are indeed um, quite significantly different um, and therefore you need a, a different framework. Okay, well, let's let's dive in and, and maybe you can tell us a bit more about what the framework actually is. What is it that governments should prioritise? So, so the essence of, of this uh, paper is that you should prioritise on two dimensions. The first and maybe the more obvious dimension is you prioritise the things that are going to do the most good. Now, we can maybe spend a bit more time a bit later debating, you know, how do you define what's going to do the most good? Uh, and, of course, that's also, in a sense, the major um, thing that you care about if you're trying to prioritise your life or if you're trying to prioritise um, the initiatives for a corporation. But for a government, the other thing that you care about, we would argue, is feasibility. How hard is it going to be to get this particular reform done compared to another one? Um, and that feasibility has a number of things that, that feed into it, but the insight that lies behind it is that the scarcest resource in government is, is not money, it's not people, it's you just don't have that much time for a minister and the minister or the premier or the prime minister has limited political capital. There are only so many fights they can afford to have at any one time. And there's only so many big fights they can afford to have at any one time. Um, and interestingly, it's exactly the framework that, that Paul Keating used. He always talked about uh, the way that you have political capital. Uh, you have a store of political capital that you get when you get elected. Um, and your job is to, as prime minister or as treasurer, is to spend that political capital doing things that you think are worthwhile, um, accepting that you've only got a finite stock of that political capital, you should use it well. Um, interestingly, if you do do reforms and you do them well, that success can itself replenish that political capital, but you can't afford to do too much at once. And therefore, thinking through what things are going to do the most good and I can afford the amount of political capital I'm going to have to spend getting that reform over the line is the essential way that we're suggesting governments should think about prioritisation. How do they get the most things done that are worth doing within the constraints of the political capital that they've got, bearing in mind that, frankly, some reforms are going to cost them more political capital than others? I, I want to dive into what counts as doing good, um, but I might just quickly check up my understanding on the feasibility front. So you've talked about political capital as being one of the sort of the big factors for government. So are there other elements to feasibility that can be constraining when a reform looks, you know, really promising and really valuable? 
Of course, there are other constraining factors. Um, the fact that it's going to cost the budget a lot of money um, uh, is a constraining factor. The fact that uh, it's going to take you a long time to explain it to the public and get them comfortable with it, that's a constraining factor. Um, the fact that um, you've done a lot of reform in the last few years and the public is just kind of tired, that's a constraining factor. Um, but our argument is that effectively ministerial time and also, if you like, trust in a government are the really big constraining factors. Uh, and so that's what they have to conserve. Now, a number of things go to making something more or less feasible. If something's more feasible, then by definition, it requires less political capital. A number of things go to making something more feasible. So, for example, if there's a really good evidence base for a policy, then it's it's easier. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. There's lots of things for which the evidence base is outstanding, but um, they don't happen. Um, but if, if the evidence base is better, that makes it easier. Um, if uh, political opposition, uh, and by that, you know, that includes how much does the public hate it, how much does the other side of politics hate it, how much do interest groups hate it, um, uh, which interest groups hate it, all of those things um, uh, go to the political um, feasibility. And then um, feasibility also depends on how hard it's going to be to implement a policy. If, if, if you can implement it simply by um, the stroke of a ministerial pen, that's pretty easy. You've got to get it through Parliament, that's a bit harder. Um, but on the other hand, if all you've got to do is then change one rate in a tax scale, implementation is pretty easy. If part of the reform is that you want every school teacher in Australia to do something differently um, as they uh, teach their classes every day, implementation is going to be a great deal harder. Uh, so those are the three things that we see essentially going together um, to make up feasibility. Firstly, how good is the evidence base? Second, um, how strong is the opposition or weak is the opposition to the policy? And thirdly, how hard is it going to be to implement it, which, you know, partly is about, you know, what particular processes will you have to go through to get formal approval, but it's also about what kind of things do you have to do afterwards to actually make it happen? What kind of administration changes um, changes in the actions of what um, one author has described as street-level bureaucrats? Um, how much do they have to change their behaviour? Those are the three big things that go together to affecting the amount of political capital that you need and therefore the feasibility of a reform. Right. Okay. So, yeah, the, there's this dimension of... of public value and there's this dimension of, of feasibility and feasibility actually has many different components in it that uh, may trade off against each other but um, but there's a kind of a general assessment that has to be made on that dimension separately from this question of what what would do good. I think that's right because I mean obviously those things do interact to some extent um, if you've got better evidence for something then you know as you kind of work out exactly how the reform is going to work um, you may well in fact ensure that you've got a reform that that is going to do more good than it might do otherwise. But yeah, in in general, the value of a reform is quite a different issue from those issues around the evidence base, the strength of opposition, and the complexities of implementation. Okay, so so let's then dive into um, you know what counts on this on this other dimension, uh, which to me seems like the trickier uh, dimension. But I'm sure for a politician, perhaps feasibility is the trickier one. So. What you know? What do we mean by 
public value here or, or by doing good? Uh, what, yeah. what counts? I probably wouldn't use the words public value because I think that's very much tends to bring up um, theories of public value management. We kind of talk in, in the report about why we don't think that that's a very helpful framework for this kind of problem. I guess what we mean by value um, and doing good, um, we try and unpack in the, in the report. A lot of people tend to approach this by saying, oh, look, it's all a value judgment, John. You know, it's, um, you know, and that's kind of how you have your tea. To which I push back and, and I would say, in fact, when you really push people hard, you discover that the things that they value don't seem to differ that much. So when you really push people hard and you say, so do you care about all other things being equal, you know, economic growth and all the resources that that brings? And they go, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Do you care about health and people living, you know, longer lives and better health? And they go, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good too. Do you care about education? Yep, I care about education. Do you care about, you know, individual liberty, all other things being equal? Yeah, I care about that. Do I care about the sort of our cultural identity as a community and the fact that we we do actually feel that we're part of a community? Yep, care about that. Do you care about the level of social connections? Do you, you know, does it matter that people um, have lots of other people in their lives that they interact with? It's, it's pretty hard to find anyone who doesn't care about that. So you can kind of go down the list. Do you care about the environment? It's sort of most people care about the environment, you know, one way or another. So the sort of basic things that we care about don't seem to vary very much. Now, if you're a hardcore philosopher at this point, you can kind of make things a lot more complicated. You know, you can have some philosophers who say that these values I've just identified, they're valuable because they're objectively valuable and there are objectively true arguments about why these things matter. Then you get another bunch of people who say, well, you know, that kind of, you know, I, I don't think that those arguments are ever provable um, or solid. Um, all I'm prepared to do is go with things that lots of people say they care about. Or alternatively, you can have a point of view that says, I'm only interested in values that people say they're prepared to vote for. But the interesting thing is that when you actually take the big step back, all those roads wind up leading to the same place. You wind up with basically the same set of values. And, and one of the things that we do in the report is, is use a framework that's been developed by um, the New Zealand Treasury called the Living Standards Framework, um, in which they lay out this series of values pretty similar to what I've just talked about. And one of the lovely pieces of analysis they do is they look at a whole series of different pieces of work um, that have at least at some stage at least tried to have a go at, you know, what are these basic values? And they point out, you know, they kind of all come up with the same list. <laughs> now, maybe they read each other's work and copied it, and I'm sure there's a bit of that, but um, I think it's essentially because when you push people hard, what they what they consider to be valuable, they don't disagree about very much. There are other things they disagree about, but they don't really tend to disagree much about, about the ends. Now, very occasionally they disagree about why they care. So, so some of the time they say, oh, look, I don't care about the environment as a good in itself. I only care about the environment because other people care about it or because, you know, otherwise I can't have all the other things in my life that I like. People differ about that. Indeed, that's a... Um, a debate that goes back as far as Aristotle, uh, at least. But in a funny way, it doesn't matter very much. Either way, those people wind up saying, yeah, actually making sure the barrier reef is still there is a good idea. Yeah, people often disagree about why they think these things are valuable, but I don't think those disagreements are very important because they wind up agreeing on what it is that is valuable. Right. So there's like a common uh, set of things that that most people are likely to consider valuable um, 
discreetly on their own. Is that our sort of basic needs? Yeah, that's, they, that's you know? the basis. And, and those things, as I said, consist of things like what's the scale of resources we have, which we kind of roughly measure as the size of the economy. Um, you know, having a job matters, housing matters, knowledge and skills matter, um, health matters, safety, social connections, the environment, um, subjective well-being, cultural identity, civic engagement and governance, um, I would add um, individual liberty. It's it's hard to find many people who strike a line through any of those as not mattering. So then the contest comes when you start to have these um, these different values butt up against each other. Which ones become more important? And that's and that's the the political contest. Well, that's certainly when it gets harder. Um, and and some of the time that's what we're doing. So some of the time we are trading off a better environment for lower economic growth, at least in the short run. Uh, now, of course, climate change is a fantastic example of something where you're probably not trading off the environment for economic growth in the long run, but that's a different argument. I guess one of the things, though, that I would observe is that whilst some of the time we are in fact fighting about how those things should be traded off against each other, often we think we're having a values fight. But what we're really having a fight about is, a, is an empirical question about the extent to which something really will affect one of those values or not. And sometimes we're having a fight about, well, which policy will in fact affect which of those values in which ways. So as I look at a lot of the Grattan work, um, often what we've done is identify policies that actually maximise pretty much all of the values that we care about. Um, uh, and... Uh, on the other hand, for whatever reason, they're not particularly politically popular uh, and consequently um, they're less feasible and consequently they tend not to happen. So sometimes we are trading off those values, but I think with any particular policy question, it's really worth thinking through very carefully what would be the best policy here and does it really involve trading them off? Now, a, a very obvious example of that in recent times, of course, is around COVID response. I think the way that that got framed early on was, um, you know, this is a trade-off between health, keeping more people alive against the economy, because if we, you know, do anything to keep more people alive, that's going to lead to much less in the way of economic activity. I think one of the things that's emerged through the COVID crisis is that to a significant extent, that was a false trade-off. Even in the places in which government did not shut down or limit um, people's activity in some ways, they voluntarily limited their activity anyhow. Uh, and so economic activity slowed right down anyhow. And the, the classic study that's been done is comparing Sweden and Denmark. Denmark shut down a lot of things by government um, directive. Sweden shut down almost nothing by government directive, but the economy turned down and, and unemployment jumped up in both places um, to a relatively similar extent Reg Chetty in the US has done similar work comparing the outcomes in different United in different states than the United States. You know, I think a more accurate way of thinking about it is when people are getting sick from COVID, uh, economic activity turns down. Um, so uh, it's not a consequence of the government intervention often that's caused the economic activity to be constrained. It's much more a consequence of the fact that the disease is in the community and that causes people to change their behaviour. So it's a lovely example of the way that people think that whether or not you um, have government restrictions on people's behaviour is a trade-off between health um, and um, economic activity, but sometimes it's not. Now, that said, 
there are better and less good ways to design those restrictions on activity so that you have the same impact on public health, but you have maybe a little bit less effect on economic activity. Um, mm. That's a different kind of question. That's a question about policy design, not a question about, you know, is there, um, uh, do we need to do anything here at all? But you're basically saying that if, you know, if uh, health is apples and economic growth is oranges, you're never going to get anywhere by trying to stack them up against each other. Uh, you're looking at what policies are going to benefit both sides of the equation, at least to some degree. I think sometimes. Look, sometimes if you want, you know, more economic oranges, you're going to have fewer health apples. And that's just kind of how it is. Uh, and I agree that often there is just no right answer to that question. You know, two apples is not better than three oranges, and it's not better than one orange either. And it's almost certainly better than no oranges, um, but that's not usually the choice that we face. So sometimes we do have these value trade-offs, and there's no particularly right answer to those questions. And, you know, it's the stuff of politics to make what are, in a sense, slightly arbitrary choices between those and to get on with it. But quite often, I don't think we face quite as stark a trade-off as that. Uh, and I think it's often possible to identify policies that are very high value, however you look at them, and a bunch of policies that are pretty low value, however you look at them. So when you do identify those high value um, and uh, highly feasible opportunities that this framework would suggest should be a government's priorities, you know, are they the things that governments should take to elections as their as their core promises? Are they the things that governments should have in their back pocket as the priorities they're pushing towards, but maybe be less sort of transparent about that? You know, does the public have a right to know what, what a government's top priorities are? I think it's certainly helpful for them, helpful for them to lay them out and, and helpful because, you know, if you care that much about it, the public are entitled to know. And I think they're also very helpful because the whole point of this kind of prioritisation is that you're sending signals to your to your public service, to your ministers to say, these are the things that we are really going to get behind um, because they're going to make a really big difference. Uh, and if other stuff gets in the way, then we are effectively saying in advance that that other stuff will have to take a back seat uh, until we've got the things that are um, really important done. I guess one of the, the insights of prioritisation is if you start with a list of 20 things, then usually what happens is that three of them get done and they are the three that are easy and usually if they're easy, they don't matter very much. Whereas if you only start with three things on the agenda, even if they're all hard, they will probably happen. Um, because if you're only trying to do three things, then, you know, and you're focused on it, then they usually do happen. Um, and if you've chosen them carefully so that you know that they're high value, then you'll get a lot done that really matters. So, yes, I think it is helpful to, to lay them out, um, if nothing else, because it's a clear signpost to people about how to spend resources. Politicians are trying to steer a middle course between good policy and what's politically feasible. Um, and the point of good quality prioritisation is that you are explicit about the fact that it's a bit of a middle course and you are trying to find things that are doing enough good and are feasible enough that you can get yourself re-elected. And there's a really interesting example of this. The the ALP, um, of course, picked up a policy on, on negative gearing um, and the reasons that the rules should be changed. They spent a lot of time arguing in public about why that was a good policy change. The effect of that argument um, was that over time, public opinion did change quite substantially. Um, 
towards thinking that the rules on negative gearing needed to be changed. And indeed, when we looked at um, what happened in the election, um, the evidence, I think, is pretty clear that they probably didn't lose any votes over that precisely because they had put in the time to argue why this was a good policy change. And of course, they'd also done the analysis out the back and said, and it'll do some good. Let me play uh, devil's advocate for a moment. So just um, I'm usually for transparency and I, I do think that the public has a right to know about, about what a government's kind of proposing be their priorities and their values. Um, but having said that, does that prompt counteraction? Does being you know really explicit about your top three priorities, let's say, corner you a little bit um, in terms of, of providing to, uh, to vested interests uh, the opportunity to really um, counter that and, and essentially uh, losing some of the distraction that comes from having lots of different policy battles in motion? Look, I think that's an argument, but I think if you look at history, the, the governments that won difficult policy battles were the governments that picked only you know, a couple at a time and, and really fought them hard. Um, the reality is that the resources of interest groups uh, ultimately are always going to overwhelm um, the resources of you know, a, a premier or a prime minister and their senior ministers. Um, if you pick too many battles on too many fronts at once, uh, then chances are you wind up losing quite a lot of them. Uh, if you are picking one of these battles and you really go after it hard, then you've got a fighting chance. And you know, we provide a number of examples of that. If you look at the way that John Howard and Peter Costello went after the GST. You know, they they spent the better part of six months doing almost nothing else. Um, firstly, in designing it, but then getting out there and selling it and explaining how it would work and why it was a good idea and why this was not going to lead to all of the terrible things that people said it would lead to. Um, similarly, if you look at the way that Simon Birmingham went after the um, school funding reforms a couple of years ago, um, I and mean, we calculated in a couple of months, he did, in the order of 70-odd media interviews, he was perpetually out there explaining exactly what was the government doing, why was it a good idea, why was it fair, uh, why was this not going to lead to, you know, $50,000 fees for, you know, parents who couldn't afford it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you really have to put in the time to do one of these. And if you set off, um, you know, a, a series of reforms all at once, then you'll have different lobby groups um, and interest groups on each of them, all screaming about, um, you know, why they're going to be worse off, their members are going to be worse off as a result. Um, and, and it's very hard to fight all of them at once. So I think there's a big advantage to um, uh, picking a limited number. And if, you, if you're going to take on one of these reforms, you know, you can't do it by subterfuge. You know, fortunately, democracy doesn't work like that. Um, Sooner or later, you're going to have to put the reform through. And, and I guess we're arguing you might as well have the argument up front uh, rather than hoping that you can just have it in the last week and be done with it. You know, history of the world suggests that those kind of reforms don't happen. The reforms that do happen are the ones that people argue for consistently over a period of time uh, and gradually start to move hearts and minds. Now, that said, I don't think everything about prioritisation should be published public. I think it probably does help if governments are least a little bit clearer about what their criteria are. I suspect that this framework that we have come up with, which is essentially about value and feasibility, has in fact been invented a number of times already and is de facto the way in which a number of governments have prioritised in the past. But they've never written it down. And so I suspect that this wheel has been reinvented a number of times. And hopefully by writing it down, we've created a blueprint that means that 
um, someone's life in, ease, in, in future is going to be a lot easier. I think the, um, on the other hand, if you look at the way that our framework works and in particular requires an assessment of um, uh, feasibility and how strong is the opposition going to be to this and where are they going to be coming from and all of those kinds of questions, um, I can understand why a government doesn't necessarily want to write down where everybody can read it, um, its assessments of those things. I can also understand by definition a prioritisation process is one in which a bunch of things don't make the list. By definition, you don't think they're priorities. If you announce that you were thinking about X, but you've decided it's not going to make the cut, that just creates an argument that by definition you've decided you don't want to have. Um, so I would suggest it's appropriate for governments perhaps to occasionally lay out the basis on which they're prioritising. Um, I can understand why they don't necessarily lay out their reasoning, their assessment of every single proposal. I think if they were a bit more structured about that internally, um, that might well help. And inevitably, they should be um, laying out what their priorities are. Sometimes they'll do that before an election. Sometimes they'll do it after an election. Sometimes they'll do it somewhere in between. Um, but I think uh, it helps both the public and those who are involved in the business of government to understand this is the agenda that we are trying to pursue. Uh, and if you're on this list, then, you know, we expect, you can expect that we will be giving you time and resources. And if you're not on this list, then you should expect that you're going to have to take a back, back seat to the things that um, do matter more. So obviously in practice, it's, it's not quite as simple as being able to identify your priorities, however public you are about that, and then execute on them. Because, you know, then a global pandemic comes along or, um, you know, a Royal Commission um, releases findings uh, that sort of change the game. There's a public or political scandal of some kind that throws a spanner in the works. So how do we adapt prioritisation as we go? Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. Um, public life is a bit of a contest between this sort of agenda you would like to have, the things that you think are going to make a really big difference, uh, and events that push you into things. Because, of course, this, this dimension of feasibility, um, so which, of course, is around the evidence base, it's around um, the, the extent of political opposition, that changes over time. Um, events, you know, something like 9-11, makes security legislation much more popular than it would be otherwise. And, and you know, restrictions on the liberty of, of individuals that you would never dream about otherwise are feasible. Um, the uh, Port Arthur massacre meant that um, the ability of a government to constrain uh, uh, firearms was much higher overnight. Uh, and so, yes, absolutely, events change your prior, change the feasibility of um uh, particular initiatives, and sometimes they also change the value of particular initiatives. And the and COVID and the the global um, economic crisis it's it's precipitated is a really good example of this. Nine months ago, you probably weren't quite so worried about well, in fact, you weren't anything like as worried about unemployment, um, about uh, excessive savings, um, about keeping the economy rolling. Today, that's a really big deal and priorities have changed. And indeed, if you look at the uh, recovery book that Grattan published a couple of months ago, we were really explicit about the way that there were a string of policies where it made a really big difference whether or not you did them in the short run versus the long run um, because of the world that we're now in. Uh, for once, the urgent really was the important. And therefore, a lot of the long-term things that Grattan and lots of other people think need to happen in policy should take a back seat because a bunch of 
other policies have become a great deal more urgent, and urgent in the sense that the value they will generate is much higher if you get on with them now than, than later. If, if, if you do economic stimulus now in the middle of a recession, that can make quite a big difference. If it takes you three years to get around to it, well, you've frankly missed the boat and you've already got 10, 12% unemployment and you've got a major problem. So uh, yes, priorities change. This is inherently a dynamic process. But the fact that things change in response to events, the fact that it's a dynamic process doesn't mean that you shouldn't plan. Um, as the saying goes, um, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't plan. That means that you plan and you accept that you are going to have to adapt to circumstances and events. But the theory goes, at least, that you will wind up getting better outcomes. Um, you will wind up responding better if you at least start with a plan that's been carefully thought through, that you can then adapt to whatever circumstances throw at you. And to the extent that events might change uh, what your priorities are, it should still be because value and feasibility have changed rather than um, just, just something sort of outside of the framework entirely. Well, I think so. I think if you look at those kind of events, um, one way or another, they either change the value of particular initiatives or they change the feasibility um, or they create the, 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 they create effectively new initiatives, potential for new initiatives um, that for whatever reason weren't really on the slate because either they didn't have any value or they weren't particularly feasible. So yes, I think the, the framework is still there. It's still doing all of the analytical work that you need it for to help you think things through, but how it applies obviously changes in response to circumstances. So I'm not sure I'm ready quite to part with these high value reforms that are perhaps less feasible. Is there anything we can do to make a high value reform if, if, if we know it's got, um, you know, if, if we know it's going to do good, uh, it's just not feasible. Is there anything we can do to make it more feasible? Yeah, I think one of the big things that governments can do is improve the evidence base. Um, now, of course, you can't necessarily change the facts. Um, and indeed, we don't want people to simply be able to arbitrarily change the facts. That sort of sounds very Soviet. Um, but you can definitely improve the analysis around them. Uh, you can definitely improve the transparency around them. Um, you can improve the understanding of their implications. Uh, and so I think on a number of, of initiatives, um, you can initiate reviews, whether that's inside the department or you get someone independent to do it or you ask the Productivity Commission to do it or, or whatever it might be, to, to basically look into a particular issue that improves the, the evidence base on a particular initiative. And that makes it easier. And it makes it easier for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, you know, when, when someone does that kind of work, the, the work by itself will persuade some members of the public. The fact that people then talk about it means that some members of the public might start to think about it in ways they haven't thought about it before. You may well change the views of some of the experts. It may change the views of some of the players in the industry, um, whatever the industry might be. And it generates news that in itself creates a public discussion that that might well change how people are thinking about something. And, and I think you can see any number of examples of, of situations in which creating that evidence base and then just talking away about it has made life easier. And you can find any number of examples in which um, uh, failing to have that evidence base made it a lot harder. Um, now, that doesn't mean that Every policy that gets up has a really good evidence base. The harsh reality is governments do things all the time without particularly good evidence, and often the results are not very pretty. Um, but uh, it certainly 
helps and governments, one of the things that they have the power to do um, is to initiate those kind of reviews that can help to build the evidence base. Um, as I said, essentially the analysis, um, the understanding of the implications um, so that the path of reform is easier. Well, this has been a fascinating and wide-ranging discussion. Um, let me ask just one final question um, around just imagine um, that the the government and uh, public service and individual ministers sort of adopt this framework uh, in their day-to-day thinking about priorities. What do you see changing? So I think what would hopefully happen is that governments would propose fewer reforms, more of the reforms that they proposed would be very high value. They would spend more time arguing for them and more of them would happen. Ironically, it may well mean that in the long run, actually the same number of initiatives get done anyhow, but they will be things that have higher value. And and that's the whole point of prioritisation is that you're saying, you know, our time in life is short. There's only so much we can get done. If we think very consciously about um, what we think is most valuable, we can get more done of the things that we really care about a lot. Uh, And by definition, what we lose is some things that might be valuable, but not nearly as important as the things that we have made space for. So I think if governments do do this, they'll be more explicit about that. Um, We'll all have clearer signposts about what they're up to. uh, And hopefully... Um, we'll also see Australia prosper more because governments will do more of the things that can really make a difference to our lives. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. You can keep the conversation going on Twitter at Grattan Inst and social media Grattan Institute. If there's a topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the podcast, get in touch at media at grattan.edu.au. As always, take care and thanks for listening. <laughs>